Nature teaches more than she preaches. There are no sermons in stones. It is easier to get a spark out of a stone than a moral. Nature cannot show us how to embrace the void. ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 210 of Embrace the Void, where things couldn't get more unnatural. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we continue to say the word natural over and over until it loses all meaning. So, let's natural, natural, natural. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... Something. My guest this week continues to be Alan Levinovitz, professor of religion and science at James Madison University and the author of Natural. Alan, thanks for spending some extra time here with The Void. Absolutely. My pleasure. This has been a lot of fun. So now I think we've been very responsible adults and eaten our very natural uh, vegetables and talked about uh, other things besides the culture wars. And so we can maybe indulge ourselves a little bit here. We initially got in touch uh, because of a little dust up in the culture wars, And there are so many spots in which the culture wars intersect with these issues of natural. But we got in touch over natural law, of all things. Um, and you talk about natural law quite a bit in your book. This is a, a sort of very ambiguous concept that has multiple meanings that cause a lot of confusion for people. Do you want to start maybe just by disambiguating what what the different versions of natural law are and sort of how we should think about them a little bit? Uh, no, I oh. don't want to do that because, <laughs> because... Okay, fair enough. Because, well, if what you mean by that, I'm sort of kidding around. Um, there's all sorts of academic and scholastic distinction distinctions between different types of natural law oh yeah i don't want i don't want to go that far (laughs) i'm not going to do that instead what i'm going to do is give what i think what all of those people would object to but what i think is a pretty maybe they would object but a pretty reasonable uh, (laughs) down-to-earth understanding what natural law is which is that natural law is the idea that both moral and physical truths can be deduced from the structure of reality combined with logic applied Mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. And that can mean, of course, all sorts of things. But because natural law theories tend to assume that the reason we can discover these moral laws is because morality is built into the structure of reality, they lead almost inexorably, starting from Aristotle and going right up into the present, they lead almost inexorably into people mistakenly 
appealing to the structure of the natural world as normative. So Mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily have to be the case that natural law works. And there are natural law theorists who insist that that's not what natural law does. But time and time again, in their own work and in the work of other people, they end up doing precisely what it is that they disavow natural law from doing. And of course, it makes sense because there's some kind of unifying natural intelligence has created, has organized reality in humans such that that there is a morality built into it and that and the same organizing force also built reality it's not unreasonable to think that well you should be able to look at how reality in the natural world is organized and and use it as a kind of object lesson mm-hmm. for how how we ought to be right so that's mm-hmm. that without getting too into the weeds on the on the philosophical stuff that's that's my take on natural law Oh no, I've, we very much like the weeds here, and this is so. This is titillating to me because, as I mentioned in part one, I do identify as a fairly strong moral realist. I do think that morality is part of the fabric of the universe in an objective kind of way. I don't think it can be studied by the quote unquote natural sciences in the way that I think some some moral realists, some um, you know maybe Sam Harris kind of uh, folks might think that. Um, we we can approach ethical questions, but I do think ethical questions are true, independent of our beliefs about them. I don't think that requires that there to be some sort of designer of the universe that instilled those moral truths into the universe. So I'm very I'm atheistic about my approach here, um, and I also am very sympathetic to the concern that you know that can that can slide into a place of just looking around at the descriptive and and sort of eat lazily inferring a kind of prescriptive from that rather than like having to really 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 heavily interrogate all of the kind of tensions within the world of of morality that we experience yeah that's a i mean a nice way a nice way to put my other objection with the natural law project broadly conceived and again i you know they object hey well natural doesn't natural doesn't mean the same thing in natural law that does in the sort of colloquial sense of the word which is true i guess as far as it goes but um it remains the case, I think, that either natural law is kind of emptily tautological. In other words, it just means it's just synonymous with, well, there's objective truths about morality or something mm-hmm. like that, which we can figure out by thinking hard and looking at the world, which is, mm-hmm. I guess, sure. OK, well, that's fine. But well, who cares then? That's just what everyone thinks that that's, you know, that everyone's well, all the anti-realists. Right. 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 <laughs> hey, all, all the moral realists think that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and what natural law is historically and in its appeals, I think it's there's almost always an element of material reality and the natural world as mm-hmm. as bound up with the way that we should deduce our morals. And mm-hmm. and those those ways are almost always, in my opinion, hopelessly flawed. So that's, can you give that's like an, can you give a, an example from the natural law sure. literature like that? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, I mean, I, I, the most sort of famous example, and again, Aristotle scholars are going to quibble with me here, but I think it's pretty true, nevertheless, is that Aristotle mm-hmm. looked at humans as as a natural kind. Mm-hmm. And observed how humans related to each other, thought he was observing how humans related to each other and how they were biologically, and then decided that 
there were certain roles that were mm -hmm. appropriate to human beings that you could deduce from their natural biology. And that mm -hmm. therefore those roles were not just appropriate, but they were the right roles. And you don't want to violate those roles. And right. that, that also just seems hopelessly confused to me. The, the best you could get is something like humans, you know, human children are different from human adults biologically in a certain way. So the young are different from the old is kind of a natural kind, which means therefore that certain things will be harder or easier for children to do. Mm -hmm. And, and so, and then, but then with some other kind of, you've got to bring in some other kind of calculus mm -hmm. um, or some other way of thinking about it beyond just that's how children are to, to convince me that that's how children ought to be, or that's how children mm -hmm. ought to be understood or something like that. So that's a, that's a good, that's a good example. Another example is on procreative law in the Catholic church, for example, yeah, um, great. routinely appeals, even though, again, the natural law theorists will deny this. It's just empirically false that if you look, if you look at decisions, the church has made, they'll say, well, there are some some sort of essential, some sort of features of humans which are es essential to them, um, natural features of humans. And so by mm -hmm. the, the telos of humans is built into certain natural functions, how you determine which those are, it's not very clear. Mm -hmm. um, and so we can't interfere with those without interfering with the telos of humanity. And that mm -hmm. to me is just absurd. It just doesn't work that way. You don't look at, you cannot deduce the telos of humans from their biology. I, I just mm -hmm. don't, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it makes sense. Yeah. I was, uh, one of the things I want to chat about was I love the part in the book where you talk about the sort of theorizing about birth control in the Catholic church and what counts as natural versus unnatural birth control. I vividly remember back in undergrad sitting in a friend's, um, you know, room one time we were hanging out and, you know, doing our thing. And he, we were arguing about, um, uh, birth control and he pulled out like the, the canonical Catholic text and read to us the actual wording of it. And we were like, this is, this is absurd. Like, this is a silly parsing like a like a a splitting of hairs it felt like there um is that sort of similarly what you were experiencing as you were it, working through that these is materials? Mm -hmm. that is what like, i experienced it's like a and, classic and, example of like the way this is a constructed concept right right and you know one of the one of the, again i apologize to all the natural law theorists out there but <laughs> a lot of very smart people smarter than i am have worked very hard for many centuries on coming up with very complicated ways of, of obfuscating, in my opinion, what is at root just mm -hmm. a kind of base appeal to nature mm -hmm. when it comes to their ethics. And I think there's a lot of really complicated Thomistic reasoning and neo-Thomistic reasoning and all this stuff that's, that's, that's doing a, 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 it's a sort of Rube Goldberg machine to distract us from what at the end is, I believe, a kind of intuition about the way in which the natural world should inform our, 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 you know, our ethics. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and you know, I don't, I, you know, I can't. It, it takes a long time to adjudicate those those arguments because, of course, the complexity of the of the reasoning that is that is that intervenes between what it is I think people are actually doing and what what mm -hmm. they say they're doing is takes a while to unpack.
Well, no, but I think it's really valuable that you brought up the Aristotelian example of of natural slaves, right? That this and and don't don't worry, we've actually had Aristotle on the show before, and he he okay. he, he, he cops to it, like he cops to the reality of of, of what he claims in those particular uh, things. People can go back and listen to that episode if they want to. So I don't <laughs> think you're off base in terms of he really does just say certain people are natural slaves, yeah. To which, to which, of course, the natural law scholars, understandably, will say, or modern natural law scholars, well, just he was just wrong about that. That's that that was right. it, that he was that, that he just got it wrong, and that if you right. do natural law correctly, you will find <laughs> true that, natural law has never been tried. <laughs> that that in fact, that 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 humans are not natural slaves. That that there's a kind of inherent dignity in every human being that precludes by natural law. Um, uh-huh. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, no, yeah, but I think I think that would be a lot more. I think we would be a lot more sympathetic to those kind of arguments if it wasn't for the case that like modern race realism is literally just doing the same thing that you were just saying there, and it's taking Aristotle's ideas of natural slaves and trying to sort of rationalize it via IQ or something like that by by different groups and and their different um, you know psychological traits or something like that. Well. Oh, I mean, I, well, so, I'm not, I don't know. I don't know if I'm fully on board with that. I don't think, I, I mean, I'm not as familiar, I think, as you are with the modern race realists, um, mm-hmm. like sort of internecine debates. But if I understand what race realists are doing, it's something like, I mean, maybe some of them, I'm, I'm sure some of them are like really weird and out there and saying things mm-hmm. like, because this group of people is biologically constrained in these ways, they ought to occupy a certain kind of hierarchically lower place in society, right? Sort of like a, like a mm-hmm. version of the caste system um, yeah. as it existed in, you know, in, in, in traditional Brave new world style uh, societies. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's maybe something like that going on, but what I take, I mean, I, I guess a more generous reading of that, which I'm sure you're not especially interested, but I, I don't, I don't, I think it might be something more like just a description. In other words, I could imagine a well, modern so, race yeah. realist saying uh-huh. something like, wouldn't it be great if we, I mean, the, the, so the racist modern race realist saying something like, wouldn't it be great if we could get the Asian gene for math and mm. plug it into uh, the other races? Um, that would be good. Then we could that make does sound like my Twitter better. feed. Yes. Yeah. So, so I'm saying like in that sense though, that those people, they might not appeal to nature at all um, mm-hmm. in terms of what they think ought to be while still being this sort of, the, the the kind of modern race realist that you do you see what i'm saying does that distinction make sense yeah i actually i think it it does make sense and i and the flip side of it for me is my concern i think what i see is a kind of Martin Bailey activity between the descriptive and the prescriptive that really they do have like, like take, um, you know, um, Charles Murray or, you know, uh, various folks like that who I think have very clear prescriptive policy agendas, right? They are pushing an agenda normatively speaking, but if you press them on that, they will fall back to saying, I'm just raising epistemic questions and unlike empirical observations and like, I'm not I'm not making any sort of further claims like that, which I think is is a bit of a dodge. And I think we should press people on like, what are the implications of, of these sorts of um, so like here to tie this back to the naturalness stuff I, in your book, you talk about the relationship between natural law and rationality, which is another way of getting at, you know, this kind of distinctions between humans that I think you're talking about and and like 
I think it's fair to say, or, or let me ask you this, like, why, why is it that when people read that stuff, they get the impression that it's kind of racist? Do you feel like there's something to that what, reality? What stuff? When well, so like when you stuff. when you read discussions of like the natural law where it talks about, you know, um, rational entities versus non-rational entities in the way that you can treat rational versus non-rational entities and you combine that with stuff like Kantian theories and you end up with, you know, it's okay to treat different races differently because they have these different kinds of rational capacities. Like there is this sort of very long tradition it seems like oh, of mixing of these philosophies and science to create these these normative judgments. Without without question, um, mm -hmm. I, I was, all 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 I meant. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the the only thing I'm trying to press is that I think you can be descriptively racist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can be racist in a lot of ways that aren't sure. that don't entail appeals to nature, as as normative. That's all. Mm -hmm. And and I think that actually a lot of modern race realists would claim maybe accurately that they're not that they do not think. That nature is normative that's what i meant before like they would love mm -hmm. to bring the lower races up and if you could do that through you know technology wouldn't that be wonderful i mean it's equally racist but in a way that is not that that doesn't suffer from the same kind of flaw mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. all that's that's all that i mean that makes sense so let me let me ask something sort of related to this because we were talking a little bit before the show about like marketplace of ideas kind of parts of, of stuff within the mm, culture war yeah. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts just first are broadly about like is there value in like studying these kinds of racial differences if you know or is it you know so the alternative perspective, right, coming from the like, quote unquote, woke perspective, it would be this stuff is pseudoscience. It's been pseudoscience. It will always be pseudoscience. And we shouldn't be making space for even these kind of descriptive explorations because we know that the prescriptive stuff is so necessarily around the corner that if you if you create that space, you end up with, you know, immediately people getting rehierarchied by by these kinds of systems. Yeah, this is, this is a complicated question. So mm -hmm. a couple of things. One is just to point out that in many contexts, um, everything's hopelessly confused. So in many mm -hmm. contexts, for example, there's all kinds of race realism. Um, when it comes to, for example, I mean, I just saw an article that said, uh, well, it was interesting because it oscillated between dark skinned and black, which is actually an important distinction. So I want to bring that up. Um, but the mm -hmm. article headline was, why black people don't need sunscreen or something like that. No, all sorts of people were sharing it and they were talking about the racist, the racist way in which like sunscreen application is sort of generalized without taking into account the unique needs of people with black people, but also people with dark skin, right? Mm -hmm. and, and medical studies are constantly talking about racial disparities. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, the rates of osteoporosis in black people in america versus white people in america um so race the idea that we can divide people up according to race and then figure out what kinds of pathologies they suffer from or advantages they have um it's just it's just widespread and common and we accept it in all kinds of contexts so mm -hmm. the first the first thing to grapple with when it comes to talking about race realism is just bracketing the controversial race realism issues like intelligence and just acknowledging the extent to which race realism when it comes to biology permeates our discussions of everything. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the first thing I would say. Mm -hmm. the, the, the second thing, and we just need to come to terms with that in a way that isn't defensive um, 
and figure out what it exactly it is that we mean. Because sometimes it is, you could, you know, people say, well, race is real, even though it emerges from culture, right? Or something like that. So mm -hmm. yes, there are health disparities between black people and white people, but that's not built into black people's biology. It's built into how their biology was perceived. And then the social conditions that resulted, which is the, are themselves then produce biological things, but they aren't, you know what I mean? You know, the mm -hmm. whole, the whole rigmarole, but sure. that's just not true of every, you know, the osteoporosis thing, that's not what people are arguing. People are basically in these studies, right, are just saying, hey, look, there's these black people. And that's like a that's a nice shorthand for a certain kind of biological set of resemblances. And there's these white mm -hmm. people and that's shorthand for a biological set of resemblances. And we, we've come to these conclusions about osteoporosis in these two different groups. Um, mm -hmm. So I just think we need to think we, we need to address that. That's the first thing. The second thing is I don't. I don't think race is an especially useful way to approach this stuff. I don't want us to talk about race as much, frankly, and this is this takes me away. This moves me towards a certain kind of position in the culture wars, I guess, although I really hate being assigned any positions in them. But I, I would like to see less race talk um, and more stuff like dark skinned people when it comes to sunscreen. Um, mm -hmm. And I would like to see um, I would like to see that concept itself kind of deployed less, frankly. And I think that would be helpful because part of the reason, at least what I understand, I'm no expert on this, but from the geneticists I've talked to, part of the problem with, with race realism with intelligence is just a sort of problem with race realism in general, which is that mm -hmm. this is just not a good way of describing biological resemblances between people in the way that family is useful, right? Mm -hmm. Biological family or something like that really is useful. Stuff runs in families. That's a useful way to talk about a certain kind of you know, relationship between group of human beings that are related biologically. And as, as I understand it, race is not super useful. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd like to just, I'd like to start with the race realist by saying, Hey, maybe, maybe we shouldn't be studying which races are the most intelligent. That just doesn't mm -hmm. seem like a good, how about we don't do that? But that doesn't mean not studying the biology of what we call intelligence. I think mm -hmm. that's totally fine. I mean, there's obviously this has been in the news lately with this, I think it's Paige Harden. Is that her name? Uh, I think so. Mm -hmm. um, this book about studying intelligence and, 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 and the genetics of intelligence specifically, I, I do agree with her, which is that it seems weird to taboo that study, that, that area of study, just because we're afraid that people are going to move from normative statements about genetics uh, and intelligence to statements of value about people. That's just mm -hmm. not, we're going to ignoring those realities is not the way to deal with the mistake that people make after they find out about them. Yeah. And I, I do think that like there are concerns around the IQ stuff that is not just the fear of shifting towards the normative too quickly, but also that like it may be also a pseudoscience or something, or it may also be very yeah, questionable I'm, science. I, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert I'm, on that to like, yeah, yeah. No, I was going to say, either. I'm strongly, I'm strongly convinced by the psychological community that, imperfect as it is, there are good ways of measuring certain kinds of cognitive capacities that have a lot of predictive power and are, mm -hmm. are fairly stably replicable. I mean, I don't know. I, so the, at least as I understand it, that, I mean, maybe, you know, who knows these days, anything can turn out to be on a house of cards, but at least the people that are doing this don't seem to me right. to be pseudoscientists. And insofar as they're the experts and I'm not, I'm willing to concede that we can measure something like intelligence usefully and talk about it. Yeah. And I think, you know, you said you were, you were concerned this would put you in one particular camp or something. I actually don't think that what you've said so far necessitates that you end up in the, like the woke or the anti-woke camp or something like that. Because I think, you know, there are lots of the social justice oriented folks who will say, 
we think that IQ probably tracks something, but it's it's messy and confused as to what it is. And there's been a lot of misinformation. There are there are there are someone that will take the stronger view that like it's really not tracking literally anything or something. But I don't think that's probably even the dominant view. Right. I do think there's a recognition of differences in cognitive capacities across individuals and across um, you know populations to some extent. Um, and similarly with your comments about wanting less race talk, right? I think there's a way that you could put that, which I think would be, they'd be very sympathetic um, to, which especially when you, you talk about the difference between dark skin and light skin, which would be like recognizing that um, there, there continue to be causes of inequity or injustice that are tied to what we think of as quote unquote race, but that it might be more valuable to talk about like light skin privilege versus dark skin privilege or something like that. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, or, uh, and, you know, to the extent that race often codes for, because of the history of racism, codes for socioeconomic oppression, mm -hmm. a lot of confusing stuff happens, you know, where we start thinking like what's really going on is that it's poor people. Mm -hmm. that are getting that are that that that's that's the dominant factor in whatever analysis it is that we're looking at um but it's just that because so many poor people are minorities because of a history of racism we use the race as the shorthand for mm -hmm. what it is that's that's causal and I, I don't think that's helpful and and so you know it's funny if you if you look at articles right people are always identifying the race of the person that's being talked about as if that is, you know, if we're going to identify one thing about them besides their gender, right, which is just built into pronouns, we're going to identify their race. So like, you know, like Hubert, a uh, black man from Philadelphia. I think that's also, like, yeah, but it's a well, corrective. I just say, like, mm -hmm. Well, you know, you could also say like Hubert, like a poor man from Philadelphia or Hubert, a rich man from New York. And I think that there is a way in which not reflexively privileging race as the like, the 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 most meaning laden or the most descriptive single term we can use to tell you about someone it's like oh what's hubert like and then people are like well he's black as mm -hmm. if that's the thing that we need to know about him first or even like is he you know this there's this person i just met the first question shouldn't be like you know is my daughter right is it a boy or a girl <laughs> right so like we're going to be hanging out with someone they've got a kid is it a boy or a girl is hubert is he, what race is hubert um, when you're reading an article by Hubert, perhaps the first question should be something like, is Hubert wealthy? Um, or, you know, what country is Hubert from? Those things seem to me, if we can elevate the importance of those sorts of categories and and start to deconstruct. So I'm very convinced, and this is, again, a book that kind of puts me in a bizarre camp, but I'm, I like the writing of the Fields in Racecraft. I don't know if you've read this book. Mm. Um there's a really interesting book where basically they're they're fed up with the sorcery of constantly invoking race, which they believe enters into a feedback loop that that creates that that creates the opportunities for the kinds of racism that they acknowledge exist and make, um, you know, and then make in a, in a, again in the feedback loop make race a category that needs to be used to describe in the first place. Um, and they're against these kinds of incantatory reifications of. The races, I think, though, I don't know, they might be uncomfortable with capitalizing black, you know, it, it, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know, I'm speaking for them now, in that that's sort of a symbolic reification of this category, right, like capitalizing nature with an N, it's like, there are black people out there, uh, you know, white people out there, uh, they seem, and I'm convinced by this, to think that that might not be especially useful.
or that we do it too much. Yeah, I can see the concern. And it, this to me, I don't I don't think I have an easy answer here, but I am sympathetic to what you're saying and also sympathetic to sort of the other side of this argument, which is that those pieces have been um, sort of not centered properly not treated seriously in various contexts in a way where it may you know it shouldn't always be the most important factor but there may be many situations in which it is a very important factor and hasn't been included in the way that I, things are discussed and that has obscured important realities right so that's the absolutely mm -hmm. absolutely the case i mean that's that's so i'm not saying that it's not a useful thing to know i just mm -hmm. think it's very useful and as you said it's been something that's neglected in a lot of contexts where it would be really helpful. You know, I mean, the cliched studies about the, like the resumes, the blind resume studies, that's it, that sort of thing. I mean, that's, a, the, there are very, very obvious places where race or just, you know, it's mm -hmm. obviously race just is important when you're out in the world. Um, but yeah, just to kind of a, a pulling back a little bit from that. So like one of the problems I, when I think about the race realists, a problem is built into their name that they think race is this real thing, that this mm -hmm. is the best way to carve up humanity is into these categories. Mm -hmm. um, that's something I would want to push back on as well. Yeah. So one other way in which what I, what I think you're talking about, I think, resonates with tensions. And I don't think there's actually a clear answer on this, but I see, you know, you see this going uh, being a big issue on the left, quote unquote, or amongst the woke or the social justice or and, and an argument between them and the, like the Marxist right is like this focus on class versus focus on race. Right. Where. Um, you know, one side will argue that the focus on race takes away and distracts from the the real important class conflict, whereas the on the other side, they will make the case that, like, if you only focus on class or if you focus primarily on class, you don't deal with the kind of systemic injustices that will make it the case that your correctives disproportionately benefit white people over black people, for example. And I think both sides have a really important point there and that we, we need that dialectic back and forth between them as part of our sort of ongoing social justice project. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I actually think, I mean, I, I, I am, yeah. So, you know, to the extent that <laughs> I am progressive myself and mm -hmm. so whatever, whatever flaws I see, you know, at least that's how, you know, I see myself broadly speaking politically. Again, I think these labels are, can be frustrating and problematic, but I I identify with many of the political causes that are associated with progressives, and that's because I think that, generally speaking, attention to the negative effects of race and class are things mm -hmm. that progressives seem more attentive to than conservatives. Um, mm -hmm. And so I am therefore <laughs> aligned with that. And to the extent that I think certain ways in which progressives treat race are problematic in my opinion. Um, mm -hmm. And honestly, I think a lot of it relates to sort of the same kind of natural stuff. It's just a category that seems intuitively important because we want, it's like gender. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, a, yeah, I want to talk about gender next. So yeah, 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 dive it's in. a position <laughs> that I don't, it's a position that I don't see addressed that much in discussions of gender. And, and I actually think it should be, which is that for me, it's not even about, you know, with, with all the stuff, the kerfuffles over pronouns, as my wife has pointed out to me, is so it sucks that our language just forces that to be the first thing that we know about someone and care about. Why, why, mm -hmm. why, in, in most situations, the real issue is that it's just not that important. 
Mm-hmm. I care whether the person is the right person for this job. I care whether they are a nice person. You know, who's, whose kid are we hanging out with tomorrow? Uh, says my daughter. A much, a, a much more important question would be something like, I, where I'd love for it to be a more important question is what are they interested in? Mm-hmm. Are they, do they like singing? Uh, you know, that's something I like. Then we'll get a lot. Are they nice? Um, even how old they are seems to me to be as a mm-hmm. biological normative category more important, right? At least, you know, old people, you know that they're more likely to have aches and pains. And so when you want to talk about, you know, like the top quality bedpan or whatever, right. you're going to want to have that conversation. It's likely that an 80 year old will like to have that conversation. I'm sorry for the old people that are like, we don't, we don't use bedpans, you asshole. My dad's 93. I know he doesn't have a bedpan. Um, I'm just kidding around. You know what I mean? And so, and likewise with a kid, mm-hmm. right? Oh, we're going on to someone. Well, are they two years old or 16 years old? It just seems much more important to me as a biological category that gives us information about how this person is as a human being, mm-hmm. then are they a boy or a girl? I and that's, I w- so that's what mm-hmm. I'd like to see more of is just realizing that actually that, 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 that like de-emphasizing that. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think I agree. And I think a lot of folks on the, like, you know, the futurist leftist side of things want to ultimately get to a place where, that stuff doesn't matter and everyone can be very radically flexible about their various kinds of identities and such like that. I think, um, you know, the tricky part in all of this is that that's your your experience and that's a, an important and it's good that you're in that place about things like gender and such, right? The, the reality, though, of like the pronoun kerfuffles is that there's a large segment of the population that is not in that place with you and holds all of these very negative some of them attached to yeah. issues around naturalness views around transgender individuals and so these you know what might seem like a performative overemphasis could again be a valuable cultural corrective for you know a, a moral pull in the other direction mm-hmm. absolutely the the so to think about the naturalness question the context of debates over gender and what gender mm-hmm. is and how it relates to sex I, I'm tremendously frustrated with the conversation. And I say that advisedly because I'm not transgender and I'm not gender non-conforming. And so my frustrations are not the visceral frustrations of a person who has a lived investment in how these debates are adjudicated. So I, I put that out there in the same way that, you know, I can be frustrated with discussions of poverty, but I'm not poor myself. Mm-hmm. And so uh, my concerns come from a place that isn't informed by, you know, it's a, a, a quote unquote academic concerns, but I don't think they're less valuable or not that they're less valuable. I don't think they're not valuable for, for being that. And I'm concerned about the way the conversation is going for the same reason I'm concerned about the way the natural conversation is going, which is that I think a lot of people assume that a, a concept that is very clear is not in fact clear and is being mm-hmm. deployed in a variety of contradictory ways. Mm-hmm. And nobody, to my mind, there's there's not a lot of admitting that going on. There's just skipping to the next step of, given that I understand gender in this particular way, now I'm going to argue from that position. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a problem. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'll give you a very concrete example. Okay. I think I think that that it is uncontroversially true. <laughs> despite controversies over it, that human beings, like all mammals, are sexually dimorphic. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that comes up in the, you know, like, oh, the, you know, the anti-woke are like, look, people are denying sexual dimorphism. And every once in a while, you get someone on the left who like is denying sexual dimorphism. And it's like, uh-oh. 
mm-hmm. you know, what, where, how to, how to make these two sides meet. And it, uh, uh, to the extent that people want to deny that on the left who are interested in transgender rights, I just think it's the same thing as trying to find gay seagulls. I, I mean, it's just, you don't want to base your arguments mm-hmm. for the dignity of transgender people on on a distorted understanding of biological reality because you think that without distorting that understanding people aren't going to accept your arguments for dignity i just don't i, I don't there's a there's a feedback loop and i don't know where people enter that loop but i do see that loop happening and it's a it's a big mistake in my opinion um, you know, I, who am I to tell activists, right? What I'm, I've never said that I'm politically effective. So maybe it's actually really effective. <laughs> um, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's a good way of thinking about things. Well, so let's, let's dive into that a little bit, uh, because I think, so, so I think when people push back on the sexual dimorphism, which you do see sometimes with the kind of spectrum arguments, um, I, I don't think they generally believe that a lot rests actually rests on that. They will. They're sort of like, well, I'm a scientist and you're saying something wrong. So I'm going to here's my 20 quote tweet thread about it. But like what I'm saying is I, I think in a lot of ways, the trans gender community and the activism around it is doing what you want, which is to say it's not having a debate about sex, right? It's saying making this about gametes and stuff is dumb. Like we're not checking people's gametes when we're trying to figure out what they are. So we're talking about gender, which they think is a much more useful conversation, right? In, in, in your line of thinking, like if I was going to ask what somebody's sex is or what their gender is in the mo- in their view, I can get much more information at learning about their gender, which they want to largely decouple from questions about sex but when they do that when they do that decoupling then they're accused of making shit up right then they're accused of like people are just doing whatever they want and going hog wild and being all contradictory and stuff so there's you know there's like a no-win kind of situation maybe it is a no-win kind of situation but that's because it's a difficult situation it's analogous to although i don't i mean we could get there as well it's analogous to debates over what, what what a human is Mm-hmm. in the in the abortion debate. So to the extent that gender emerges out of sex, I mean, that's another thing that people just need to recognize. There's a, and the sort of romanticizing of the Eastern or indigenous cultures thing. And I've, I've tweeted about this previously. This happens a lot with, with gender. So you have these people, mm-hmm. oh, well, there's, there are three genders in India and like the mm-hmm. yin-yang the and two Taoism. Spirits, yes. and the, yeah, yeah, the two, and it's like, you know, this, first of all, is just stuff just doesn't hold up to scrutiny, frankly. You know, it's, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's bad anthropology. The, the 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 gender binary is just again cross cultural and trans historical. You know, yes, of course, there's like weird creation myths where God goes from being a man to a woman or whatever. But find me a find me a culture with folk tales that don't assume as primary a heteronormative understanding of the gender binary. Overall, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And, and stay with me here for a second, because your skepticism, I think, is coming from the place that I want to dissuade people from being skeptical about. It's, it's OK to believe that. It's just true. Mm-hmm. It's true. You look at Japanese folktales, well, you look at Chinese folktales, you look at Aboriginal folktales. And yes, you can cherry pick the examples like you can cherry pick weird you know, phrases in the Hebrew Bible where where gender seems reversed or something like, or it's like, you know, the feminists who want to like reclaim the Bible as a feminist text. Like you can pick out their like random feminist hero in the Bible. But the truth is that humans are sexually dimorphic, that that's extremely important biologically to human beings and that males and females as sort of the protagonists in archetypal human stories and in language 
exist because of that biological reality. And what, and what I want to encourage people to do is just seed all of those points mm-hmm. and then start the arguments. Because in my opinion, nothing is lost and a great deal gained by just not trying to deny any of that, which to me has nothing to do, again, with the dignity and value of transgender people, for example, just as you don't have to find, you don't have to like point to like all the cool gay folk tales, mm-hmm. right? And pretend that like homosexuality was like the normative form of sexual interaction in ancient Greece or whatever, you know, whatever it happens to be like, yeah, oh, look at all this like Japanese art, like with the homosexual. Well, sure, of course, there's always been this, but like, again, these cultures have been heteronormative for biological reasons. That's totally fine. It's okay. That's, that's, yeah. And then we can just go from there. You yeah. Know what I mean? my, my only caveat that I would throw in there is that by heteronormative, we don't necessarily mean that they all approach the dimorphism the exact same way, so much as that they all have some sorts of gendered roles that are influenced, like, right. So that, so that way that you're incorporating the reality of like matriarchal societies or patriarchal societies that are radically differently organized than ours but still might qualify as heteronormative in the strict sense of largely being centered around heterosexual sex and you know male female relationships in this way that's exactly right and the Mm -hmm. idea that there are men and men do blah 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 and women and women do blah 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 like i just that's like i Mm -hmm. and and, and i think one of the things i'm sort of banging my head about is that when i see fellow progressives thinking that like if we allow that biological human sexual dimorphism has understandably resulted in cross-cultural and trans-historical gender binaries where men by the sex like like the males Mm -hmm. have one role and females have another role uh, broadly speaking or many roles you know and that's how it's understood like that's just how it is it's fine Mm -hmm. that's it that's why the, the in fact what i would say is the 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 mistaken sense that those norms that emerged out of biology ought to be normative is mm-hmm. responsible for bigotry against people who are gender non-conforming. That's exactly right. the problem, is that you just shouldn't care. Who cares? Now we know that being gay is okay. Like, <laughs> that's great. You know, like, right. let's celebrate that rather than claiming that, like, rather than trying to prove that it's okay by, like, claiming that in ancient Japan, everyone was gay or whatever. I don't know. You know what yeah, I mean? I guess what I think is, I think it was important f- for a particular place and time to do that. So I, one of my favorite books recently is Gods of the Upper Air, which is about the Boaz group, these anthropologists pushing back on the classic models of, you know, really like the, like the more traditionalist version of what you were just saying, which is that all cultures follow a strict patriarchal regiment and move from barbaric to civilized and stuff like that. And they wanted to upend. So, so like there is an important sense in which it is good that we have broadened out our scope of what we think that human societies can include and can encompass right and that it seems like i think is compatible with what you are saying that like we don't have to go so far as to you know make extreme claims about um you know the the sort of broad swaths of the way that societies have acted that that, that's exactly right and that Mm -hmm. we don't have to make extreme claims about or, or 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 sort of like kind of i don't want to say disingenuous because that implies uh motive in a way that I don't want to, but sort of distorting claims about biology. We don't, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't need to do that. 
mm-hmm. in order to get the kinds of moral goods that I think we ought to want. Right. I think it's very easy to make the argument that like this has been the norm across a bunch of like uh, um, gen- general heteronormativity about men and women, for example. Let's say it's been the norm across all of these societies and it's bad. Right. Like and it pressures men and women into roles that they don't necessarily want to be in. And like we as a progressive liberal society can can try to work our way out of those kind of assumptions and expectations. That's, that's, that's exactly right. right. And we that's don't need to, we don't need to people right, okay. do it. I'm I'm sympathetic yeah. to that. I really do think, yeah. you know, and it's, but it's, it's hard going back to what you were saying back in the very first episode, uh, you know, human beings are these narrative meaning makers, right? And like th- some of them maybe need those narratives about ancient civilizations also having some of these kinds of individuals to see that their traditions also are valid, right? To see their traditions yeah. also go back thousands of years, that maybe there's something yeah. important to them that maybe we shouldn't necessarily completely disregard either. Absolutely. So if, if it, I think it's a really great point. So I think if what, if instead of the argument being something like, in ancient Japan, they had no gender roles because there were 17 spirits and therefore, and that's because there's no such thing as human sexual dimorphism, Therefore, it's okay to be gay or transgender. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But if what's happening is something like, you know, we we too can trace the history of this gender nonconformity, which is interesting, right? Because in a way, it's sort of admitting the value of a kind of at least a kind of existence, right? Yeah, right. An existence, yeah, yeah. Persist like this kind of gender nonconformity has actually existed for very long. There's a lineage to this, right? It's cool. It goes back into the mists of prehistory too, mm-hmm. and that's just valuable because it's valuable because that's a nice thing. In the same way that you know, like it's just cool. It's cool and mystical and and great. Um, that's totally fine too. I, mm-hmm. I get mm-hmm. that. Just don't. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So I think that's a really, I think that's a really nice way to understand it. However. However, to get back to the sort of gender debates um, mm-hmm. and the hot button stuff in the culture wars, I think it's also important, and this is something separate that I'm thinking about working hard on because I feel like hopefully I have some kind of talent for <laughs> talking about extremely hot button issues in a way that doesn't anger everybody. Mm-hmm. I hope. I think that there's a real problem communicating the meaning of gender. If it is not simply the roles that emerge from biological sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, to the extent that I think, uh, you know, I said that we had this sort of this back and forth on Twitter, but this is about the Judith Butler stuff mm-hmm. to the, yeah, there are a lot of bigots out there, but there are also some people who are not bigots. They're just trying to figure out what's going on with their kid at school or like with the, you know, like these new pronoun things. Hey, what's going on? Right. It's, you know, like my in-laws or something. Right. These are just like normal liberal people who are like, this is interesting. Tell me about this. What is gender? To the extent that we can't answer them clearly. And mm-hmm. I believe that we that we I, I say this advisedly, but again. To the extent that that's like a hard, actually a hard question to answer. And mm-hmm. I personally, having spent a lot of time in the space doing research on, you know, gender for my book and for a recent piece I wrote for Wall Street Journal about transgender athletes, I'm not happy. I'm not happy in the sense that I don't understand mm-hmm. the way in which people talk about gender in the world of uh, in, in the world of gender nonconformity and wanting rights for people who are gender nonconforming. I just I, and I think that owning that ambiguity more clearly up front would be also be helpful. 
Um, mm-hmm. And that's something where it gets a little bit touchier. I think it's also very hard because the current environment in which people are trying to have these conversations to me seems highly poisoned and like, maybe it's, we can talk a little nightmarishly bit. bad. It's just awful. Right. And so like, if I were to give a little in the ways that you're sort of describing, there's a reasonable concern. I think that that will be taken advantage of in some kind of way that the people, because there are parts of, you know, so like, um, take the example of the classic debate about whether, uh, um, sexual preference is a choice or not, right? That's that's sure. another one that ties in with all this naturalness yep. stuff. And Absolutely. It was, and like, there's a very reasonable, pragmatic argument to say, look, if there are a bunch of like bigoted individuals in the world, right? Maybe, maybe they'll make a little progress if you can really convince them that it's not a choice and this person who they love can't be otherwise. Maybe they're, maybe they're psychologically will break towards just accepting it or something yeah. like show, that. Show them the gay seagulls or show them the gorillas. But the problem is yeah. it turns out, and I discussed this briefly in the book, that the gay seagulls are actually kind of abnormal. <laughs> They're mm-hmm. not really natural. They don't occur very often. It is, they don't, you know, the only, the only animal, and this is my knowledge currently, um, the current biological consensus, the only animal that actually forms long lasting homosexual paired relationships or like domestic sheep, um, which gives the unnatural people, they're like, it's perfect, right? It's the only animal. It's so unnatural that the only animal is itself an unnatural animal. See, I told you this is against God's great plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, when that happens, you don't want to have to all of a sudden cede all of the rights. Now, of course, politically, obviously, it, it has it actually I'm totally wrong, right? It does seem to be the case that that worked really well. That you've got Lady Gaga singing songs about how her that it's natural to be gay or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and and then it worked. That worked. And people were persuading you. I mean, I don't I don't know. But um, I, like you're right. There is a risk there. Right. If you know, 10 years down the line, we're like actually you know, well, like there's a risk because I think we we do want to leave space for saying that people's sexuality could be malleable and complicated. There's a book about sort of desire that's come out recently that is, uh, you know, um, getting people's attention about this kind of topic to some extent. And so, like, you know. They're, they're, and they're, they, she brings up examples of like uh, um, gay individuals who wanted to say that it was a choice and, and have that be a kind of empowering sort of thing. And, and like if you build your argument on it not being a choice, do you preclude those sorts of things? And maybe you don't like maybe, you know, once you've got society switched over to being cool with gay people, then you can trot out that actually it can be a choice sometimes and it doesn't affect anything. Right. It doesn't really yeah. undercut the progress you've made. This is, that's right. And, you know, I'm no, I'm no expert on this. And, and, and so I really, and I learn a lot from listening to, I think a parallel, a parallel world in which similar issues are, are at stake is Mm -hmm. in disability activism. Mm -hmm. And so, and this is also a place where terminological considerations seem to have this outsized importance in part because of the implications they have. So, you know, this, the whole back in the day for me, it was like differently abled versus disabled or ableism, or what does it mean? Do we want to say disabled? Is it really a disability? Is it, is it normative to be a human that can see? Mm -hmm. Um, Do we want to think, is it bad not to see because humans naturally are sighted creatures? You know, I don't know, whatever all these debates um, are replicated over there. And I, I respect the people who've paid attention to how these debates happen Mm -hmm. um, and what is a useful way of talking about them. And for me, my only intervention is whenever I see someone thinking that 
in order to establish that someone is normatively entitled to certain kinds of rights or certain kinds of treatment, mm-hmm. there is a grasping for biological normativity or alternatively, the argument that something isn't biologically normative as if conceding that it is. So, so I'll take vision, for example. Mm-hmm. I just think it's unreasonable and, and inaccurate to say that human beings aren't sighted creatures, right? This is a, as a category of like as a creature, mm-hmm. we are quote unquote in the sort of the, the, the benighted teleological language of nature. We are meant to see, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That is, that is what eyes are meant to do. That is what they have designed. It was what they evolved to do. And to the extent that someone who's born with eyes that can't see is has is a departure from what's biologically normative their eyes are not doing what they are meant to do i don't think that treating those people with dignity or providing them with rights or even understanding that being blind might be that might be a a form of culture that ought to be celebrated in the same way as being cited that all of that stuff shouldn't be contingent on denying that being cited is biologically normative. That's just mm-hmm. uh, like, uh, I, I, and that's sort of a s- similar kind of thing where you'll find people saying, well, there's all kinds of, it's a spectrum of sight, you know, mm-hmm. therefore blindness is on this spectrum just as being sighted is. And I just think that's a foolish argument. It's, 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 it's false in important ways. It, it, it doesn't understand what it means to say humans are sighted creatures. It uses exceptions to, explode categories. Um, and I don't think you need to do any of that in order to secure the kinds of mm-hmm. rights and dignities. But at the same time, as you've said, it's so e- since people use biological normativity so often as <laughs> their criteria for moral normativity, right? Um, then people are really wary of even giving a little bit of ground on those things. So I, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, yeah, I'm sympathetic and- to the, to people that, that are, that are, that don't want to do don't want to acknowledge the kinds of what I believe are sort of philosophical realities. Right. If you're in a community that feels at existential risk under siege in this kind of way, maybe you don't feel like you have the luxury of, of picking and choosing which fronts you have this battle on. Maybe you feel like you have to fight it on all of these fronts. Um, even if some of those fronts are stupider than other ones. Absolutely. And it's another, this is a relate again, related, but not the same. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm interested in how under, whether we understand something as a pathology mm-hmm. is or isn't allowed. And so I'm going to give two examples on either side of this. So with something like ADHD, there's a real push to understand it as a kind of condition, right? It's a pathology that needs to be treated. And the way that we get dignity and treatment for people with ADHD is not merely saying that they, that's just like a normal worry, get over it. But like mm-hmm. diagnosing it as a condition that we can then intervene and treat medically, right? That's the way we've decided we're going we're gonna to help dignify people with ADHD. On the flip side of that, you have something like morbid obesity, where a lot of activists see the way in which people who are morbidly obese are treated without the dignity they deserve and, mm-hmm. and marginalized by medical institutions and told that they are disgusting or inferior. And they see all of this and they say, well, well what we need to do is is argue that morbid obesity isn't pathological. Mm-hmm. That's how we're going to stop all the bad things that are happening, to which the medical community responds, understandably, with something like, but it is. Mm-hmm. But it is pathological. And that's and 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 I understand again, right? So from both sides, but in both camps, I can see how people who are trying to agitate for for recognition of the egregious ways in which really fat people are discriminated against 
think that a part of that argument needs to be something like being really, really fat isn't bad for you. Mm -hmm. And therefore you need to treat us with respect. And I just think that's a mistaken way. It's a bad way to make the case. Mm -hmm. I I understand. I think your general points across these different ones make sense. Um, And I think you're, you're, you're sort of duly respectful of the potential concerns on the other side, I realize we're running short on time. I know you've got an out, so oh, yeah. um, I, these are all you know. Well, we got like, I got could... five more. I got five more minutes. <laughs> yeah, I know. But we got to get you to the enlightening round. You can't you can't avoid your torture. Oh. Um, but I also yes. wanted to give you one second. To, I know I, I like to ask folks. You know, if our listeners are looking to dive deeper into this particular issue, are there other resources besides your book, which is great, that you would recommend um, that folks check out that that have helped you along your thinking about naturalness? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So very broadly, this is the broadest recommendation. I never evangelized this text, so you don't have to read it at all. It's it's everyone's taste. But the Zhuangzi is a Chinese classic. Mm. Um, that's one of the foundational Taoist texts. The basic writings, the first seven chapters are just terrific and really inform my thinking about all of these issues, especially binaries. Uh, the Zhuangzi's famous passages about the the difference between this and that, shu and fei, or that is it and that is not it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just really funny. Great, great piece, great work of philosophy, a great classic. Mm-hmm. So the Zhuangzi, I highly mm-hmm. recommend. Um, another essay I recommend mm-hmm. is, is, it's going to sound tangentially related, but I, I really do highly recommend it. It's called Devil's Bait by Leslie Jameson. And it's in her collection of essays called The Empathy Exams. And what it's about is a disease called Morgellons disease, widely understood to be uh, delusional parasitosis, a uh, hmm. form of delusional parasitosis, which people think that there are worms growing out of their skin. Okay. And they don't. They're deluded. They do not have these worms growing out of their skin. But they believe that they do. And they have all sorts of reasons for believing why this is. And it's a, it's actually a disease that's sort of communicated online. Very interesting, Morgellons disease. And so Jameson goes to a bunch of Morgellons disease conferences. And the question she's asking herself is, in order to empathize with these people, mm-hmm. do I need to also believe them? Mm. In other words, do I have to believe in the biological reality that they believe in, in order to be able to treat them with dignity and respect? Mm-hmm. And it's just a fascinating essay that really reveals why and how beliefs about biology are linked up with mm-hmm. all kinds of questions about truth and trust and respect and dignity and what is a and what is an acceptable illness and what isn't all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think that's a really great essay as well. Great. And then the last, let's see, on on the idea of naturalness specifically, my um, Mill's classic essay on uh, nature is just great. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really really good. Uh, I highly recommend reading it because you can see how far back these issues go. It's Mm -hmm. really cool. Mm -hmm. And um, for a modern treatment of the questions around naturalness for some, for, for, for solid pushback Mm -hmm. on my perspective, Mm -hmm. um, I recommend, uh, God, his name is, I'm blanking on his name. Now he wrote against the grain, uh, James. Oh my God. How am I not remembering his name? If you search it, you'll find his name. Uh, uh, James Scott. Yeah. The history of the earliest James, states. James um, Scott, um, against the grain, 
Uh, Wendell Berry is a sort of classic example of kind of someone who thinks naturalness is really important normatively. Um, the unsettling of the American unsettling of America is the name mm-hmm. of the book that I think is really, is really helpful. Um, and then on the flip side to sort of, <laughs> to go the complete other direction. Um, let's see. Well, that's enough for now. Yeah, Those that's are a lot good. Of I got to torture you before you run out of time. You still got to do the enlightenment round. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, I'm, I'm okay. You don't have to. You don't have to worry. Okay, great. All right. So this is then the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. So, for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. You are going to tell me are these things real or not real. Those are your only options. Right, you can't hedge. You don't get to define what you mean I, by the word I just, real. I just want to. I want to tell you something before you tell me. It's funny. There's this. I have a similar kind of thing. I'm working on a fiction book right now, and one of the mm-hmm. characters does something in his videos that is actually a lot like this. So I just want you. I mean, I'm not stealing it from you. Called science fact, science fiction. Okay. Um, it's great. At any rate, go I, ahead. I love that you're doing this. I, so this, this is an open source project, so everyone's allowed to steal it as they see fit. So that's that's so funny. Okay. So first of all, just to prime the pump here, is anything real? Yes. Okay, great. Uh, so let's find out what's real, right? The external world, real or not real? Real. Okay. Colors, real or not real? Real. Phenomenal consciousness, real or not real? Real. Free will? I mean, I don't know if I have the right to pronounce on that. <laughs> um, so... But I have to say yes or no, right? That's right. Real or not real? Um, real. Okay. Selves or persons? You mean like, it, that's not a choice between the two? No, no, no. Just a general <laughs> sort of broadly speaking. I know some people will distinguish real. between them, but yes. Real. Okay. <laughs> Genders? Real. Okay. Races? Real. Species? Real. <laughs> <laughs> Morality? Real. Rights. Real. Knowledge. Real. (laughs) God or gods. Not real. Oh, there we go. Society. Real. uh, Money. Real. Numbers. Real. Fictional characters. Not real. (laughs) Holes, like a hole in the ground. Real. Chairs. Real. Sandwiches. Real. Science. Real. Natural laws. Real. Beauty. Real. Love. Real causality real and finally time real all right you survived how do very, you feel very illuminating to me that the only thing i pronounced not real not real was god or gods so i'm sort mm-hmm. of surprised by that learn something valuable about yourself as a, as a realist here I did. Yeah. I really did. Also, because, well, in fictional characters, as I remember, I pronounced as as, as not, not real. real. Right. 
Yeah. Is that only to be consistent with the idea I, that God no, is a fictional yeah, character I, is not I, real? I, I think I would. I think I would want to take that. I think I want to take that back. I would say fictional characters are real, true, which is weird because I think now I'm asking like whether these are concepts that that keep mm-hmm. like yeah i don't know well we're not going to get into it that, you, would, you wouldn't be the first person to say that god is not real but fictional characters are i'll tell you that's one of my favorite yeah. categories of guests so don't worry if that's you want to be in that category there's, 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 a, there's a guy at my university i think uh, he's in my department who who mm-hmm. um specializes in the questions about the realness of fictional characters well, that's great all right well thank yeah. you so much alan i really appreciate you giving me all this time um yeah, people check out pleasure. your book natural um, check you out on Twitter. What's the, what's the Twitter handle again? Alan, just your name, right? At Alan, at Alan Levinovitz. That's there right. you go. All right. Well, thanks so much. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our newest patrons, Dan and Nick Angiono. And as always, thanks to our top tier patrons, our Archon level patrons, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, Need More Camus, and other Fossil Vega driving philosophers. Ooh, sorry, the Freedom Menu is only till 11 a.m. And Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. Maybe even subscribe to both. Leave them a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can follow me on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to our episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content and helps us keep being a show without commercials. Uh, most of all, you know in your heart of hearts, you are the void and the void is you. <laughs> <laughs>